because my Apple Watch does track my heart rate while I'm sleeping. If I eat within two hours of going to bed, then my heart rate is actually not its nice low 60, 62 during the night, but it's maybe 68 or 70 during the night. So my heart's definitely pumping faster if I eat right before bed. And so I have to imagine that's disruptive to my sleep as well. Hi, and welcome to the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I'm Tom, and I'll be your host as I share what I'm doing in my daily life to solve my type 2 diabetes. Listen in as I share the food, movement, and tools that I'm using each day. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. For a full transcript or to follow the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast on social media, please head over to SolvingType2Diabetes.com for all those links and more. Now, on to the show. Well, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I certainly am glad you're here. If it's your first time here, welcome. And if it's not, then welcome back. I appreciate you joining me again. So let's take a look at my two weeks in review, the past two weeks. The past two weeks, I have averaged 122. 122 for my average 24-7 glucose reading using my continuous glucose monitor. Now, 122 is about as good as I have been since stopping Manjaro. In fact, even on Manjaro, I used to average... I don't know, about 118, 116, uh, very good. And uh, now at 122, I am, I have to be happy with that, actually. That's just below the pre-diabetes uh, blood sugar range. Uh, pre-diabetes is decided that uh, when you have an average glucose reading of 125 or higher, then that is a signal for pre-diabetes. And when it gets up to an average of 150 or higher, that is what they call type 2 diabetes. So without the Manjaro, I have been struggling a little bit with my eating, but certainly as far as my blood sugar control with a combination of medications and movement and my eating, I am able to keep it now down certainly below the type 2 diabetes range. 122, have to be happy with that. And right now I am taking 500 milligrams of metformin twice a day. I take those tablets about one hour before any carbohydrate-heavy meal. Now, I don't have a whole lot of carbohydrates. I keep my carbohydrates down below 80 grams a day on average, and that's how I'm able to maintain that blood sugar reading of 122 for the last two weeks. But I do take the metformin right before the carbs when I do eat them. I typically eat about twice a day. If you don't count my morning coffee with heavy cream, which really doesn't have more than just a couple of grams of carbohydrates uh, from the coffee. And then usually my carbohydrates are concentrated around, let's say, two meals per day. I'm also taking five milligrams of the Farsiga. So the Farsiga and the Metformin, my movement and my eating, are, for now at least, controlling my blood sugar to a very acceptable level. Again, 122 just below pre-diabetes has been my average for the last two weeks. Now, 
here's the drama you've been waiting for. My endocrinologist appointment, my first one ever, was scheduled for this past Thursday, and in fact, I did not go. I canceled that appointment. At that time, I was looking at my blood sugar readings. I was looking at how I was eating and the medication and how that was working, and I just could not justify it. Now, might it have been interesting? Yes, perhaps. But when I see a specialist with my insurance, that is a $40 copay. And 40 bucks well, that's a month's worth of CGMs. And I th- had to ask myself, what really was I hoping to get out of that appointment? They were not going to get me back on Manjaro because right now I just don't qualify for it. I'm not uh, overweight. I'm not um, having high blood sugar symptoms because I am able to control it as long as I'm willing to control the amount of carbohydrates I eat. So there's just, I don't know, there's just no way I could justify that to myself. Now, I might have had an interesting conversation, have been able to share my story, but there wasn't anything that I could ask that doctor to do or the nurse practitioner to do, so I did cancel it. Might I go in the future? Yes. If I'm not able to get something that I need through my diet and movement and current medications and I couldn't change my medications with my primary care physician, then yes, perhaps I would absolutely go to an appointment. But for now, I did not go. Now, good news. What did I discover this week? Well, I have been researching some recipes and in fact, one of our news articles today is talking about uh, some recipes. And my wife made some chicken rice soup and it smelled delicious it looked good it was really packed with a lot of white rice and I know for me with where I like to keep my carbohydrates I could not justify eating a whole lot of that I did have some it was very good I thought you know what I can do this but just a little differently so I call it my chicken veg and then in air quotes rice soup because there's actually no rice in it. It is nothing but chicken broth, riced, and that's just the way they're cut, riced vegetables, that's cauliflower, broccoli, carrots, and onion, and chicken. So just those really three things, chicken broth, which I get from the store. I do not make that myself, although at one time I used to make my own bone broth. I don't want to spend the time on that right now. So I just got uh, these large cartons of, I think it was Swanson brand chicken broth. And then I got a couple of bags of these frozen vegetables that are cut up fine. It really does look like rice in the bowl, but it's cauliflower, broccoli, carrots, and onions. And then chicken breast chunked up. And I made a huge pot of that. I make enough to give me seven large bowls. And the bowls have two and a half cups, let's say, maybe close to three cups of soup in them. And I fill them right up. But that large bowl, first of all, it's delicious. I'm going to have some as soon as I'm done here uh, recording this today. It's a nice, chilly, rainy day outside, so it's, it's perfect soup weather. But I've made it now twice, and I'm into my second week of it. And again, each recipe I make gives me seven large bowls. Uh, if you think a regular soup-sized bowl, it might be 10, but I, I make it into seven servings, and each serving has 170 calories, 
24 grams of protein, 8 grams of net carbohydrates, that's not counting the fiber, and 3 grams of fat. So 170 calories thereabouts, and it is absolutely delicious. It's chilly here in Pennsylvania now. The average for this time of year is about a high of 44, 45 degrees Fahrenheit, and perfect soup weather. So I've had that, I'm going to say, every single day. I might have missed one day, but I've had it every single day basically for the last 10 days and I am still loving it. Let me share that tip. Very easy to make. It is chicken broth from the store, frozen vegetables chopped up into what they call riced, although there's no rice in it. It just looks like little rice pellets, and chicken, and that's it. Everything is seasoned well enough. I don't have to add any salt or even pepper or anything, and I am loving it. That's my discovery. I uh, hope you might uh, try something similar. If you make something like that, a soup that you happen to particularly like, that you think is solving your type 2 diabetes, or helping to anyway, let me know. Send me a line. Go over to the website, solvingtype2diabetes.com. Click on Feedback and tell me all about your soup recipe. What's on my needles? This is a new segment. I mentioned a couple episodes ago how in this past year I've picked up knitting. And seeing as how it's December, I am caught up in the cycle of Christmas knitting. Just a couple of weeks ago, I decided, you know what, I'm going to knit some things for folks for Christmas. And now I feel bogged down. I have been whipping out little things, little hats, mittens, scarves, things like that. And it's fun, it's enjoying, but I find myself really under the gun, so to speak, under pressure. And I don't think I want to do this anymore with this level of volume, trying to knock it out in the last two or three weeks. Part of my problem is some of it has to go in the mail. And I only have about six more days before mail has to get out that is guaranteed to get there by Christmas. Of course, with the U.S. postal system, nothing is ever guaranteed to arrive, unfortunately. But I'm going to try and rely upon it. And so I have six days to finish the things that need to be shipped. And then after that, I will have only eight days to finish the things that I can give locally. My days will be packed with that. But I am knocking out some pretty cute hats, mittens, and scarves. The hats and mittens are the first time I've ever tried making those. So far, I'm pretty happy with them. I can't put a lot of that on my Instagram. If you follow my personal Instagram, it's Tom Kreider, T-O-M. K-R-E-I-D-E-R on Instagram. And if you follow me there, you won't see a lot of pictures of this because some of the folks that this is geared for is actually following me already on Instagram, so I can't post it. But maybe afterwards, because I am taking a few pictures of when I finish the things. For my sourdough update, I am actually baking my second loaf today. Last week I made a loaf, and that's after having the starter growing successfully for about 10-11 days. I started making bread, and I made a loaf for last weekend, and now today, Sunday, I'm recording this. And so for Sunday dinner tonight, we will have more of my sourdough bread. It's my second loaf, and I'm having a lot of fun with that. And again, I post my sourdough updates on my personal Instagram, Tom Kreider. And you can follow that there, and you can see my sourdough updates as well. That's what's baking right now. 
let's take a look at the news. Now, I got some interesting articles here for you today. This first one here is called Researchers Show How Lipids, which is fat, how lipids and diabetes are closely linked. And we all know, and we've certainly talked about it here, and that we have a close association between obesity and type 2 diabetes. And what this is finding here is that certain types of lipids are able to help with insulin secretion and certain types of lipids work in the opposite way. They're finding now that all lipids aren't made the same. In fact, some are interacting with our circadian rhythms in such a way that you know how we talked about the dawn effect? That can be exacerbated. Well, the dawn effect, by the way, if you don't remember, is, is how your body prepares for a day of activity by increasing your glucose uh, secretions and raising your blood sugar levels early in the morning. A lot of people experience that. They're finding out now that it has to do with the level and the types of fat that you have uh, stored in your body and also circulating in your blood. So it's really interesting here how it's not just, oh, the fact that you're overweight or the fact that you're obese can cause type 2 diabetes or be closely associated with type 2 di diabetes, but it's actually the type of lipids, and they're calling them toxic lipids. And it's not that they're dangerous or going to harm you directly. It's just that these roles, the roles of these lipids in your physiological and your pathological, that's your disease process, is becoming more clear. And that it is, they're using these cutting edge tools like mass spectroscopy and things like that, which is, I don't know, I'd have to look that one up. But anyway, it's, it, I found it very interesting. You might want to read more about these studies. Of course, the link will be in the show notes. But if you're really interested in this, and it's, it's saying that uh, they have now uh, found a stronger cause or link, if you will, as to why some folks experience this dawn effect, uh, especially pronounced uh, when they have type 2 diabetes, based on the type of lipids that are abundant in you versus you with type 2 diabetes versus some other person that does not have type 2 diabetes. I found that very interesting. It's what I call a real sciencey article. And, but it, if you want to know about this, want to know about the lipids and how they're linked to diabetes, this is a really good one to look at. So this next article here is talking about tracking macros. And we talked about tracking macros in depth. We talked about my macros. And again, that's the three macronutrients, protein, carbohydrates, and fats. And in fact, that chicken soup recipe I just talked about, I, I mentioned the protein, carbohydrates, and fats. Those are the things that people most often track if they are tracking what they're eating. And it says here that you can actually better achieve, many people find, they can better achieve their weight loss goals. And again, weight loss, like we just found out in that other article, can be important for your type 2 diabetes. But it finds here that folks who actually do track them have better success. The article goes on to say here that your particular macro ratios or ranges are very particular and very unique. There's no ideal level. I tend to go very high in my protein, very low in a carbohydrate, and then fat I really don't track too terribly closely. I just use that to balance out my calorie needs. 
But other people might find it differently. Some people might not need to be as strict as I am on carbohydrate intake. It's something that you find out either working with a dietitian or you find out through a whole lot of experimentation. But again, this is a good article. It show, goes on to show how tracking macros can be a helpful tool for many people if you're attempting to eat more helpfully or perhaps lose weight. And that, I think that's a very interesting article. Likewise, here's an article on high protein. It says here, seven-day high-protein meal plan for insulin resistance created by a dietitian. So this article it has a lot of good recipes in it. And again, I shared a simple recipe that I started to use, and it's this chicken soup, my chicken veg soup. But this is a seven-day meal plan. It focuses on high-protein foods. It focuses on fish, shellfish, poultry, lean meats, beans, lentils, and different forms of soy, seeds, eggs, and it actually goes through day by day and gives recipes, two or three recipes a day, and it's very interesting. And if you're into recipes and you want to learn more re about recipes, I'm not going to read all the recipes here, but it does tell you good ideas. And maybe if you don't like a particular recipe exactly as it's stated, just like I changed my wife's chicken and rice recipes for soup to be a more chicken and vegetable recipe for soup, you can change some of these recipes as well. So check that out if you'd like to see some new recipes. Here's an article, and this one I think we're going to even talk more about next week, but I don't want to give away everything right now. But this article is called Make a Game Plan. Here's how to manage diabetes during the holiday season. Having a plan and sticking to it is helpful anytime. For example, I do have a macro plan and I use my fitness pal. It's an app on my iPhone and I plan out what I'm going to eat. And I find out I'm most successful if I actually plan it out the day before. For example, sometime this evening, I'll sit down and spend uh, two or three minutes, think about what's in the fridge, think about what I want to eat, and actually lay out my plan for tomorrow's eating today. And then I wake up and I don't even have to think about it. I just stick with a plan. And when I do that, I find I'm very successful. And that's one of the tools that I've used to keep my blood sugar down into the pre-diabetes range for these last two weeks. But this article is a plan for the holiday season. And what that usually has to do with the fact that typically there's more parties, more sweets and treats, more excuses to overindulge perhaps. During the holiday season, it's a festive season, and I know for particular in the U.S., we associate a lot of eating with a lot of these festivities. Again, it just simply recommends having a plan. Before you go to a party, have a plan for what you're going to do. Does that involve pre-gaming or eating a healthy, maybe some of my soup? Eating that right before I go to a party so I'm not overly hungry. In fact, I could be full and therefore not want to stack. Or do I, at a party, instead of just grazing at the buffet all night long, fix a plate, put on it what I want, and then work on that plate away from the buffet table uh, during the party. That's another strategy. So check that one out for good strategies on making a plan during the holiday season. Finally, let's look at 
This article called, This Easy Exercise Change Can Lower Your Chance of This Disease. Now, what's the disease they're talking about? Well, of course, on this podcast, it's type 2 diabetes. So what is the simple change to this easy exercise you can make? The easy exercise they're talking about in this article is walking. It's my favorite form of movement. In fact, this article has a picture of some guy walking down what looks to be a rail trail in the woods. Heck, that could be me, except I don't recognize those trees. I don't think it was a picture of me. But anyway, this article talks about increasing your speed to reduce your risk of type 2 diabetes. And it says faster walking, which it says is 4 kilometers per hour or more, is linked to significantly lower type 2 diabetes. So 4 kilometers per hour, let's see, 5K is 3 miles So this would be, oh, this is not fast in my book. This is just maybe, say, faster than two and a half, three miles an hour if you're in the U.S. Or if you're not in the U.S., if you're like the vast majority of countries, it's in kilometers per hour. It says walking more than four kilometers per hour, which is certainly less than three miles an hour, appears to give you a 10% reduction in a risk for developing type 2 diabetes. In fact, if you can walk up to six kilometers an hour, which is maybe a 17 minute mile, you have a 24% lower risk. Now it talks about doing this on a regular basis. It talks about doing this, I think the typical recommendation is 150 minutes per week. But what it's basically saying is that brisk walking as compared to say strolling, significantly can reduce your risk of developing type two diabetes. And if you have type two diabetes, I have to believe although this article is not stated, but my personal belief would be if you have type 2 diabetes, like I do, then a brisk walk can lessen the symptoms, lessen the severity, which is fabulous. That's the news. I hope you got some benefit out of it. Links to all the news articles are always in the show notes. Should be on your podcast player that you're using right now. Also, you'll find it at the website, solvingtype2diabetes.com. The topic for this week, as I mentioned last week, I wanted to talk more about sleep. We had an article about sleep, and that made me think we hear a lot about sleep and its role in overall health and also in solving type 2 diabetes. So I want to talk to you more about it and give you a little bit more detail about it. Now, this is not anything that I came up with originally. I am not a research scientist. I am not a doctor, but I did find this on the internet and compiled it from various sources and I thought it was helpful. As background, we all know that type 2 diabetes has many causes and ways to improve it, ways, things that make it worse. But generally speaking, sleep, good restful sleep is considered to be one of those things that if gotten regularly can actually help with the symptoms of type 2 diabetes. Now, why is that? The first one I want to talk about is blood sugar regulation. During sleep, our bodies release hormones. Our bodies are releasing hormones all the time, but specifically during sleep, they release hormones that can help control insulin production and glucose metabolism. In other words, burning of the blood sugar. And of course, therefore, lack of sleep can disrupt this for you, and that can lead to higher blood sugar levels or decreased insulin sensitivity. And this can, of course, contribute to the development and progression of type 2 diabetes. Now, insulin sensitivity, like I just mentioned, is is tightly related to adequate sleep. Because insulin is the hormone responsible for regulating the blood sugar levels, 
and it facilitates uh, use of the glucose in your cells, right inside the cells and little factories and engines inside each individual cell. So it's more challenging to properly regulate the use of that sugar if you're not producing these hormones as you should. If you don't get enough sleep, you can also mess up your appetite. Again, we're back to hormones because there's hormones that can control the appetite and, and they're ghrelin and leptin. Now, the one, ghrelin, that actually stimulates hunger and leptin, that signals fullness. So it's always a balance between the actions of the ghrelin hormone and the leptin hormone. The problem is that not getting enough sleep or not getting enough good sleep can disrupt that cycle, making you feel more hungry because that hormone is being expressed more than leptin, which would make you feel more full. Again, tied to sleep deprivation and not a whole lot. You don't have to just go without sleep for days, just not quite getting enough, getting five or six hours instead of seven or eight. That can do it as well. Now, if your hormones are messed up and you feel more hungry, then you're going to eat more. Therefore, you're going to have issues with weight management. Your body actually regulates itself during sleep, and it does a whole lot of this cleaning and repairing of your bodily structures. It breaks things down and builds things up. A lot of that happens while you're asleep. It has to do with the amount of insulin that's in your body, the blood sugar that's circulating. And they're finding here that by not getting enough sleep, you end up having poor weight management because these systems, again, aren't being regulated properly. Also, stress management. Chronic stress can be attributed to cortisol. Again, another hormone. All of this seems to be related to the hormone cycles in your body, the daily, weekly, monthly hormone cycles in your body. But with regards to stress management, that one is cortisol. And cortisol works in direct... Um, opposition to insulin. It almost does the opposite. Cortisol prepares you for fight. It comes about when you're under stress and one of the things you can do for getting under stress is not having enough sleep. So all this leads to a, an overall lack of well-being. Quality sleep is, is essential and when you don't get that, all of these things that we've talked about here can lead to this overall general lack of well-being. So it's, it's a very complex, very integrated system. And sleep is, is just one of those things that if you're not getting it, you can almost expect to have problems with your type 2 diabetes. And certainly it can help it become worse when you're not getting enough proper sleep. That's all well and good, but what in the world can we do to not get enough sleep or not get good sleep? Just being in bed for eight or nine hours, that's not all that helpful if you're not actually sleeping and going through the various phases of sleep. So what can you do to help get good quality sleep? I've got about 10 things here. Let's go through all 10. The first one is a consistent sleep schedule. Studies have found that those folks who go to bed the same time, now it doesn't have to be to the minute, plus or minus 20 minutes, the same time every night, even on weekends, and get up at the same time every day. What I found is also, don't just allocate eight hours. If I want eight hours of sleep, I try and go to bed, lights out, electronics off, nine hours before it is that I know I have to get up. Now I usually get up 
with a little alarm on my iWatch, my Apple Watch, I guess they call it, and it just vibrates my wrist a little bit, and that's usually what wakes me up in the morning. And I find that's not too terribly disruptive. It does not jolt me out of sleep. It's a comfortable way to wake up. So I set my bedtime to be nine hours before I know that alarm's going to go off. And in that nine hours, I can usually get eight hours of good sleep. Not always, but more often than not. So they also say here having a comfortable sleep environment is very helpful. Now, what's comfortable? For sleep, for most people, it's cool, it's dark, and it's quiet. Now, you might need to use light blocking shades. We have those. You might want to use maybe a white noise machine or uh, special earplugs that just emit a very soft uh, white noise. And I know I have a set of those from Bose. I think they're called Sleep Buds, but they're really great. And then make sure your mattress and pillow and bedding are comfortable and to your liking. That's a very personal thing, so you have to know what's good and comfortable for yourself. But a comfortable sleep environment, that almost obviously makes sense. They say here also, limit your exposure to electronic devices. And I am very guilty of this. I do find myself, the last 30 minutes before I go to sleep, I'm on my phone. And I know that's not great. I've read that it's not great. Studies tell me that it's not great. But that's a habit that I'm working on. Now, what I do set up on my phone is the blue light limiting. I have it set to almost turns almost a shade of orange uh, in the evenings. I have that set with sunrise and sunset and at night it's supposed to limit the blue light that comes out of it. Now it probably does not limit it completely but I definitely see that the screens are almost like a uh, an old-fashioned sepia tone and it definitely has an orange hue, so I think it might be cutting down on the blue light, which they find that the blue light is most disruptive because your body thinks it's sunshine, it's daylight when it sees blue light, especially shining on a screen right in your face. So maybe that helps a little bit, but ideally you turn off screens before you try and go to sleep, not right when you're trying to go to sleep. Also, regular exercise or movement, as I like to call it, I do find that that helps on days when I get in a nice long walk, maybe an hour and a half, and especially when it's brisk outside, I find that definitely sets me up for a better night's sleep. It says here, avoid stimulants. Now, coffee, tea, but also chocolate, uh, nicotine if you smoke, those types of things uh, definitely are stimulants and most people find those are counterproductive to being able to fall asleep. Create a bedtime routine. Do the same things. Almost signal to your body that you are getting ready for bed. That you It's like with kids. You try and establish a bedtime routine so there's not fussing and fighting every night. That can work with yourself too. That can be your own little mental cue that it's time to go to bed. Now this one here, managing stress, yeah, obviously that's important. How you do it. Do you meditate? Do you do yoga? Do you sit and just read quietly? Mindfulness, managing stress can help you fall asleep. And get better sleep as well. Your mind's not racing so much. Limit daytime napping. That sort of makes sense in that if you're sleeping during the day, you could not be quite as tired at night and you could have a difficult time. Now, if you do have to nap, a lot of people find 10, 20, 15 minutes good. 
but more than that, more than say 20, maybe up to 30 minutes uh, in the daytime, they found can definitely disrupt your ability to go to sleep at night. Finally, here, avoid heavy meals, avoid excessive fluid intake right before bed. Excessive fluid intake makes sense because if you take in a lot of fluids, you have to get rid of them and you want to be awake and outside your bed when you get rid of those excessive fluids, which means your sleep is disrupted. Now for heavy meals, a lot of times folks find having a little light snack right before bed and maybe a little carbohydrate is good for right before bed. But a heavy meal means your body's gonna be digesting. Your organs, your liver, your digestive tract, they're all gonna be working digesting this food while you're trying to sleep and that raises your heart rate. That also can be uncomfortable if you've eaten a large meal right before bed. I found my, with myself, because my Apple Watch does track my heart rate while I'm sleeping, if I eat within two hours of going to bed, then my heart rate is actually not its nice low 60, 62 during the night, but it's maybe 68 or 70 during the night. So my heart's definitely pumping faster if I eat right before bed. And so I have to imagine that's disruptive to my sleep as well. So anyway, these are some ideas here for you to think about, and hopefully uh, they're helpful to you to get a, a good night's sleep. And I hope you uh, found that helpful. And uh, if so, let me know. And also, if not, uh, feel free to let me know. Okay, now let's look at your questions. We actually have two folks who wrote in. The first is Wesley. Wesley says, hey Tom, with a recent type 2 diabetes diagnosis less than seven weeks ago, I was glad to find your podcast. Thanks for all the work you put into it. I took my A1C from 12% to 8.2% in less than five weeks. The diagnosis sure took me for a loop as a 55-year-old. I didn't know anything was wrong until I had a bad UTI from high sugar in the urine caused me to get all confused and almost wrecked my car. I was unable to tell my daughter where I was. We're basically neighbors living on the east side of Middle Creek near Kleinfeltersville. Thanks, Wesley. I'm glad you found the podcast too. I'm glad you're doing much better. And yeah, getting your A1C from 12 to 8.2 in less than five weeks, that is really good. So keep up the great work. And I did have to look up Kleinfeltersville. I know where Middle Creek is, and you are very close to me. Uh, sometime we should get some coffee. Uh, let me know. The next note comes from our good friend, Stephen from Glendale. And it's always nice to hear from Stephen from Glendale. He goes, hi, Tom. Guess who? Stephen from Glendale, New York as opposed to Steve from England. Anyway, my wife Debbie and I were guessing whether you kept your appointment with the endocrinologist. She said, he's not going. And I said, yes, he is. For both, or should I say all of our sakes, we hope you went to see the endo. Even if it's just for one appointment, the endocrinologist will have a different perspective from your primary care provider. Some things might parallel each other, and maybe not. Regardless, it's worth another opinion despite the cost of your insurance copay. Obviously, you're under no obligation to see your endo again. I'm glad Farsiga and Metformin seem to be working for you. That's great. I'm currently taking Metformin, 1,000 milligrams twice a day, Jardians, Ozempic, and Repeglinice, Prandin, to control my type 2 diabetes. 
Yes, that's a lot, and yet I'm physically active, cycling with spinning classes, jumping rope, resistance band workouts, but I still need help controlling my diabetes. Due to the cost of insurance in my case, Medicare Advantage with AARP United Healthcare, the cost of Jardiance and Ozempic are through the roof annually. About four grand a year for the both of them. Once my current supply of Jardiance runs out, my endo said not to renew it and keep Ozempic. In case you're wondering, I checked the cost of Farsiga with United Healthcare and it's about $426 for a three month supply. Outrageous. Again, the people that need it the most, the insurance companies, make it cost prohibitive, but this is not the forum for this debate. Lastly, there's a nice website regarding diabetes, www.diatribe.org, that your listeners might be interested in. It has a lot of nice articles, recipes, etc. For both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, please check it out before mentioning in your podcast. If you think it might be worthwhile, by all means, pass on the website. It may complement your What's in the News segment. As always, your faithful listeners, Debbie and Stephen. Thanks, Stephen, and also Debbie. Wow, $426 for a three-month supply of Farsiga. I guess I am very lucky. I pay less than 10% of that. I pay about $40 for a three-month supply of Farsiga. And I think the metformin is actually free that I take. So yeah, that is a lot, but hey, you know what, Stephen, you got to do what you got to do. If those are the medications and the combination you need, then I'd say go for it. So it looks like your wife won the bet on my endocrinologist visit. As I mentioned before, I did not go, and the points you make are very good. It would have been a different perspective, would have been interesting, and there's never a harm in getting a second opinion, but... I just didn't do it, and and I explained earlier why. But hey, thanks for writing in. Thanks for sharing your story, your medications. And if anyone else would like to share how things are going for them, there's two easy ways to do it. The first is to just send me an email, a simple email. Honestly, almost no one ever seems to do that, but my email address is tom at solvingtype2diabetes.com. The other way, and this is the way that almost everyone does it, is simply go to the website, solvingtype2diabetes.com, and click on Feedback. And you fill out a little form, and that comes to me as an email as well. So I hope to hear from you. Maybe even suggest a new topic for the future. What is next? What is for the next podcast? Uh, The topic is going to be navigating parties while solving your type 2 diabetes. We had a little article on that. I'd like to give you some techniques that I personally use. That episode will come out Christmas Day, December 25th. So I think it's timely. We have a lot of parties typically around that time in the upcoming week, New Year's Day parties, things like that. So hope you listen next week, and thank you for listening this week. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I hope you found it valuable. Please follow and leave a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. By subscribing, you ensure you won't miss the next episode. You can always get a full transcript of the episode at solvingtype2diabetes.com. There, you will also find the links to leave feedback and links to follow on social media. I'm very interested in hearing from you with comments and suggestions. Thanks very much for listening. Please remember that everything I share is just from my own personal experience and should not be taken as medical or health advice. 
please consult your own medical professionals. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.